It seemed like a good idea at the time. When someone begins a story with that phrase, <laughs> invariably you're leaning in to hear how they messed up, right? And, and that happens to us a lot of times in our lives in small ways. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I can remember when my wife and I bought blue sand for my daughters for the sandbox in the backyard. And we thought, oh, this is a great idea. They'll have like this water theme and they'll get to go out and play in this blue sand until it turned them blue. <laughs> my children were replaced with Smurfs for like the next week as we tried to wash off the blue sand. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It wasn't. I feel like... Maybe every fashion and hairstyle choice from our growing up years <laughs> fall under that category, right? I mean, I'm convinced we have pictures of ourselves growing up so our children can mock us. That's how it works. I mean, I have these pictures here from myself growing up, it's me the little guy and my older brothers and my mom and dad, and, and uh, I assure you that those pictures were the height of fashion in the mid-70s. But uh, you can take those down, that's disturbing. Um, but we do that, right? I mean, I had parachute pants in high school, anyone? Willing to admit that, parachute pants? Awesome, seemed like a good idea at the time. Now sometimes it's little things, but sometimes it happens in big ways. And at the end of this scenario that you give after that phrase, it's like, wow, you're lucky to be alive. About eight years ago, the student ministry team took a retreat to Depot Bay. Someone lent us their house, and we went to uh, kind of learn and grow with each other. And when we got there, we went to the edge of this cliff. The house was right on the ocean, and we just looked out at God's amazing creation, and we were like, this is so beautiful. God, thanks for letting us experience the beauty of your creation. And as we were walking back to the house, we noticed that there were two kayaks at the house. And we thought, you know what? Those kayaks need to also experience God's beautiful creation and do what they were created to do out on the ocean. And so we got these kayaks and we carried them over the edge of this cliff down to this rock by the water. Now, I have some pictures here. And um, that's our beloved Josh man and myself. And maybe after you hear the story, maybe you'll think that's why Josh doesn't work here anymore. But that's not the case. So we had this idea that, that we'd get Josh in the kayak, and I would wait for a wave to come and lift him up, and when that happened just perfectly, I would push him out into the ocean. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, that doesn't seem like a good idea at all. And you're beginning to pull your children out of student ministry. But it seemed like a good idea at the time, and as a matter of fact, with Josh Mann, our plan worked. I pushed him out there, and he made it. And it was a beautiful thing, and he was super excited to be out in the ocean. Now, the next person in line was our esteemed Dr. Dan Guerin. Wait, go back there a second. Yeah, it's coming. The, uh, Dr. Dan Guerin there, you know, the intelligent dean of our REACH Training Institute, decided that he would be next. Uh, and so I got him ready, and I began to push him out. And as I pushed him out, I hadn't realized that a tsunami wave was coming in. And, and here's what happened. Uh, oh, I know. That's how I felt, too. If you, could see, if you could see my face in this picture, I'd be like, oh. 
because this wave came and just flipped Steve over and dropped him uh, under the water and his paddle popped up, but Steve didn't pop up yet and he's not uh, actually under that kayak. I grabbed the paddle and put it out there and we dragged him up across the barnacles and he was happy to be alive. And, but what this really allowed us to do was to meet some really nice people uh, from the uh, Coast Guard <laughs> who uh, were, one, thankful that we were not inebriated, and two, very impressed with our 50% success rate <laughs> on getting people out into the ocean. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, we all have these experiences. In big and in small ways, we all have experiences where we would say it seemed like a good idea at the time. And maybe you would admit that your whole life is one long, it seemed like a good idea at the time scenario. But the reality is, is that at least initially, we believe that our ideas and our actions are good. And so we can't yet see the outcomes, and so we act upon these things, not really knowing if this is a good idea or if this is not a good idea, and it plays out as time goes on. And sometimes we use that phrase, and sometimes not so much. And that's kind of where we're going today. We're going to talk about two different stories in Scripture, two different choices made. We're continuing in our Choices series from First and Second Samuel, and we're going to look at choices made both by David and by Saul. And both of them would say, yeah, this seems like the right course of action, but we're going to see how those play out. And quite honestly, these two stories are a bit confusing. As we jump into Scripture this morning, these are two stories in Scripture where you're like, really? I don't know. That doesn't quite make sense to me. But we're going to dive in anyway, and, and we're going to figure these things out as we go. And we have David, the soon-to-be king, and Saul, the soon-to-not-be king, and the choices that they're making on this journey. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you want to grab one out of the pew there, it's on page 479. But let's give a little bit of background here. And we're going to start with the story of David. And David is still on the run from Saul. Saul is still trying to take his life. And David is fleeing into the wilderness. Now, you have to understand that David was anointed king when he was young. And then he had a few experiences with Saul, but then the Bible tells us that he spent most of his 20s on the run in the wilderness. And the story that we're going to look at this morning is the last 16 months of that time for David. But think about it, a decade in the wilderness. And wilderness, especially wilderness in the Middle East, is wilderness for a reason, it's uninhabitable, it's, it's dry, it's rocky. There's wild animals that are trying to sting you and bite you or eat you. You know, it's one of those places that you would go and you would take pictures at a distance or you would hike in for the afternoon, but you would be glad that you got to leave the wilderness. That's why people built cities to get the wilderness away from them and so that they could have Starbucks and drive-throughs for French fries and things, really important things like that roofs and, and, and walls, because they don't want to live in the wilderness, and yet David spent a decade there. And how many times along the way do you think David cried out to God? God, is this what you had in mind for my life? When I was anointed king, is this how it was supposed to play out? This can't be right, God. God, did I do something wrong? Is that why I'm out here? What's going on with my story. 
And we see all through the Psalms, David lamenting those very things. And those are just very real questions. And so we come to this story in 1 Samuel 27 where David's going to make one of these decisions, one of these, it seemed like a good idea at the time decisions, but it's probably a little confusing to us. Verse one, it says, David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. So David took his 600 men and went over and joined Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men and their families settled there with Achish at Gath. David brought his two wives along with him, Ahinoam from Jezreel, and Abigail, Nabal's widow from Carmel. And that's the story that Steve talked about last week. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. Now, this is not the first time that David has fled to the Philistines at Gath. Earlier on in his wilderness adventure, he went to Gath and kind of hung out in the king's court. He tried to take refuge as one of the king's people, and the officials to King Achish were like, wait a second, this is not the right guy to have in your court. This is the guy that they sing that song about. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. He probably shouldn't be here. And so David heard this. As a matter of fact, he was very afraid of what King Achish was going to do. So 1 Samuel 21 says, David pretended to be insane. He scratched on the doors. He drooled down his beard. Finally, King Achish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. And so David escaped and fled. But David is, at this point, desperate enough to try again. And maybe he thinks, my enemy's enemy is my friend. But he's come to this place in his wilderness journey where he goes back into enemy territory. And as we look at that, we're like, this is the last place you should go. What would drive you there? I mean, David's known for killing Philistines. Goliath was from Gath, the very city that he was running to. I'm sure that story was still around. People were still singing that song. I don't know how many times it had been covered. It must have been a catchy tune. But Saul had killed his thousands and David's his tens of thousands. But think of the frustration. Think of the stress. Think of the circumstances that would lead him back into enemy territory. Think of the accusations people made against him. Think of the defamation to his character. Think of the fact that his family was always in danger and his brothers and their wives and his nieces and his nephews always in danger. Think about David and the promise that was made to him that seemed to be unfulfilled at this point in time. Think about things not turning out the way they should. And that drives him into this territory. Now, he doesn't live in the royal city. It, it says in verse five, he goes to the king and he says, if it's all right with you, we would rather live out in the country instead of here in the royal city. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag. Now, Ziklag is on the southern side of the Philistine territory, and it was one of those border towns that tended to get raided a lot, and they would make raids from. But that's where David and his men ended up. And even in, in chapter 28, at the beginning we see the Philistine army gathering together to go fight Israel. And King Achish says, all right, David, you and your 600 men are going to fight with me against your nation. And can you imagine what's going on in David's heart as he's getting recruited into this army? 
But thankfully, the officials step in once again and they say, uh, King, I don't know if you remembered that song. It's been recently covered. I think Taylor Swift did it. And uh, they're singing this. Haters going to hate. And we got to get him out of here. And so finally, David gets released from that. But what is going on in David's heart during this season? We have one psalm that we know of that was written while he was in Gath. Psalm 56, and it begins this way. It says, oh God, have mercy on me, for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me, and many are boldly attacking me. He's saying, God, all day, people are chasing me down. People are saying bad things about me. It's getting bolder and bolder. God, please have mercy on me. You can just see the stress in his life that would lead him to this place. Now, is that a good idea? Now, David's story gets interrupted. It gets interrupted by this strange story of Saul. So we're going to jump into this Saul story. We're going to come back to David. But this Saul story continues the narrative. And I have to be honest with you. This is one of those crazy stories in the Bible. This is one of those stories where you might have read this previously and you might have said, why is that in there? And why would Saul do that? And how did that work? And I'm so thankful, honestly, there is a lot of confusing stuff in scripture and I do not claim to understand it all, but I'm glad it's in here. I'm glad someone didn't ages ago decide to kind of clean up scripture and take out all the parts that were weird and that we didn't understand and leave us with like three chapters that we could get. And (laughs) we'd be like, what? But it's in here. It's one of those stories and it's in here and we just take it because God's word is amazing and, and God didn't try and sanitize it for us. He's like, this is how it is. And you're not going to understand it all. And maybe this is one of those stories. Look at verse 3. It says, Samuel had died. And then it says, Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. The the word literally is necromancer. These people who call up the spirits of the dead. Saul had banned them from the land. Now, the Philistine army is setting up camp. And Saul is very afraid. In verse 5, it says, when Saul saw the vast Philistine army... He became frantic with fear. He asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or by sacred lots or by the prophets. Saul's relationship with God had been severed. He had continued to lean out. He had continued to disobey. And so he he prays and he hears nothing and God's not giving him any dreams and he tries casting lots and that's not gonna work. And there's no priest to run to because Saul had inconveniently killed them all. And Samuel's dead, and there's no prophets, and so what does he do in this desperate moment? Verse 7, Saul said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go and ask her what to do. He had just banned them from the land, and then he says, go find me one. And I love this. Immediately, his advisors were like, yeah, there's a medium at Endor. Like, they knew. Everybody knew. Keep a little hush-hush, but they knew. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? Are you trying to get me killed, the woman demanded? You know that Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Finally, the woman said, well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. 
And I don't know if she screamed because it worked. <laughs> I don't know, what? I don't know if she, I don't know why she was screaming at that point. I, and she screams and then she says, you've deceived me, you're Saul, she knows. And this is the part where you're like, boy, that's weird that he did it and it's weird that it worked. And I have to say for us in our post-enlightenment society, we look at this and we go, oh no, that's not how things work. We're smarter than that. But you know, in so many different places in the world, they would read this story and they would say, yeah, that's how it works. That the spiritual world is real, that life after death is real. And they wouldn't really have maybe the reaction that we have to this story. Don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? Apparently, Saul wasn't seeing this. And she said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Literally, that just means a divine being. I see this divine being coming up out of the earth. And Saul's like, what's he look like? And she describes him. And Saul realizes it's Samuel. And Samuel's first words here in 15, he's like, why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Can't you just see, like, what are you thinking? I was having a great time. I'd left this place and all its troubles, and you're bringing me back here. I don't know how that worked. Saul says, because I'm in deep trouble. The Philistines are at war with me. God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams, so I have called for you to tell me what to do. And Samuel gives him the same message that he'd been giving him when he was alive. God has taken the kingdom from you. You disobeyed. You did not lead in the right way. And the kingdom has been taken from you. It's the same message. And you know what? We see this pattern in the life of Saul. It wasn't just this one decision that set him off. We see things time and time again that indicate how he was leaning away from God and not into God. And we can see him slowly self-destruct. And some of these destructive patterns as we look at, these are things that maybe we see in our own life. And I wanna take three real quick from this passage. You know, Saul thought maybe this seems like a good idea. At the time, this was not one of those good ideas. And it led him away. The first thing we see is that the rules were for other people and not him. And that's kinda how he lived. Verse three, he said, there's no mediums in the land. They're forbidden. Verse seven, he's like, find me a medium, I'm going. What did he do when he got desperate? He broke the rule. Because he thought the rules were for other people, not for him. And we do this a lot of times, in big and small ways. I have a rule at my house, no technology at the dinner table. I do not want to see the tops of my children's heads, I wanna see their faces. And I'm like, you're with people now, put the technology down until I get a phone call. Because if I get a phone call, then it's important. I have to take that call, right? What about texting and driving? You ever catch yourself doing that? You ever catch yourself texting, wow, the person in front of me really just needs to hang up and drive. (laughs) The rules are for other people, not us, right? We know that NFL footballs are supposed to be inflated to 12.5 pounds, not like those cheaters from New England. All right, all right, we won't go there, just kidding, kind of, right? Now, when we do business with other people, we would never want them to cut corners with us, but maybe when we operate our business, the rules are different because it's a dog-eat-dog world and we have to survive. You see, 
We do this. And this showed in Saul his tremendous capacity for self-deception. Self-deception is the ability to justify something that isn't right. And we see this in Saul. The ability to justify something that isn't right. And we see Saul shifting the blame, hiding behind religiosity, and justifying things all along the way that aren't right. Those rules are for other people, but they're not for me. And so I'll justify my actions. Do we ever find ourselves doing that? As we fill out paperwork, well, it's not that accurate, but at least I'm not like one of those big corporations who really rip people off. And big corporations can be like, well, at least I'm not like the government that really, really rips people off. Or at least I'm not killing anybody, so it's not that bad. Maybe in your dating relationships, yeah, I want to be pure, but there's just a lot of rules and sometimes it happens or doesn't happen. But at least I'm not like Hollywood. They've got really bad morals. And we begin justifying things, and that's self-deception. You see, the principles of God are not conditional. They're not situational. They're fixed, and they're undeniable, and they're for our good. God doesn't just give us principles to make us miserable. God gives us principles because it's the best possible way for us to live, and we need to lean into those, but we find Saul leaning away from those. We find him leaning out and living this lifestyle of the rules are for other people, but not for me. The second thing we see in Saul's life is that his words were in stark contrast to his actions. We see that in verse 10, which makes me laugh when I read it, quite honestly. It says, Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to do something against his will. Right? That's what he was saying in that verse. His Words were one thing. His actions were another. He had the outward appearance, but he didn't have the inward conviction. It's the same problem that when Jesus confronted the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he talked about. He said, you're hypocrites. You're like a cup that's clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. It's not very useful. And so Saul never dealt with the root of the problem, his own heart. He was very much speaking words about God and following God, but his actions betrayed him. It's like the scripture in Matthew that says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. His words were in stark contrast to his actions. The third thing you see is that he never fully embraced his calling. He never walked in the confidence of being anointed king. He never leaned in. God said, I will anoint you king of this nation, and it's a nation set apart, and if you obey me and follow me, I will establish your throne. And Saul couldn't quite grasp that he was anointed king. He couldn't quite lean into that calling. As a matter of fact, even in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Samuel's standing there and he's, it's coronation day and he's like, and now Saul, and there's no Saul to be found. And one of the guys standing around is like, oh yeah, Saul, I think I saw him hiding in the luggage. And they have to look around for Saul on this big day. And, and it seemed like since then he didn't lean in. I was reading Tim Keller this past week and, and saw this quote. And he said, to be loved by God is to be truly loved and fully known. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from our pretense, from our charade, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I thought, well, that's a fantastic quote, but it seems like it applies to the life of Saul. 
where Saul was living this charade and he was very self-righteous about it and he wasn't ready for the difficulties that were to come. It seemed like Saul's life was a string of, seemed like a good idea at the time scenarios. And he kept leaning out of that relationship with God. Now let's think about David again for just a minute. See, I want to read that David story, and I want to say, David, you moved into enemy territory. Nothing should take you to enemy territory. Was it right or wrong? With Saul, it's, it's clear that there was a wrong that he did. It was very black and white, but with David, was it right or wrong? You see, oftentimes when we read scripture, we can moralize. And to moralize means this. It, it, we'd go in and we'd say, you know what? He betrayed his calling. He didn't trust like he should have. Is life ever so bad that you move into enemy territory? Think of all the times that God protected David in the past, and we'd say, David, you messed up. You know, the other option is we could look at the passage of David and, and we could secularize it. And by that, I mean, we could say that David survives by his wits, that he gains a higher standard of living, that he's using the Philistines for his own purpose, that he's behind enemy lines like a super secret double agent. And we could say, David, you're a genius. Well played. But neither of those are right. You see, too often we moralize things, and when we moralize things, what we do is we end up putting the full weight of the circumstance and even our own spirituality on our own shoulders, and when we do that, we marginalize God and we remove mercy and grace. And it's a crushing weight to bear when we think we are totally responsible for all that goes on in our lives. And to secularize means this, that the better we accommodate to the world, the better off we'll be. Like the environment around us dictates our behavior. And once we understand the environment, we can act accordingly. And we know that's not right either. And so this confusing story of David, right or wrong, let's not think so much right or wrong. Let's not even think location as much as we think response. What was David's response to this? Because I think a lot of times... David was doing the best that he could under his current circumstances, which might define my parenting style. <laughs> doing the best I can in the current circumstance. What was David's response to all of this? What was David's response to 10 years in the wilderness? Because I think David's story is very much similar to our own stories. Now, it's my guess that you haven't been anointed a king or a queen. Maybe, but odds are against it. But think about David's story. I mean, David was anointed king when he was young, and I've always wanted to think about that scenario. I'd love to see what it meant more, because after he gets anointed, what happens? Can't you see him? He's like, okay, what now? Right? Did he change his Facebook status? We see like, just anointed king of Israel. Like. Back to the sheep. What changed? I mean, then he did get to the palace. He got to the palace. He got to see a little glimpse of maybe what his life could be like. And he defeated Goliath. And there was tremendous victory over the Philistines at that point. And they wrote a catchy song about him. And then he was driven to the wilderness. And that's where we see character come out. And so what do we see in our own character when we are in the wilderness? When it feels like we're living in enemy territory. When we take up residence in Ziklag. When our circumstances seem confusing and our choices seem complicated, when things don't appear to be going right and direction 
seems distant and dreams seem unfulfilled and we feel like we're not using our gifts and we feel like we're put on the shelf, how do we respond to those times? When we ask God questions like, God, is this really how my life was supposed to play out? It seems like these promises are going unfulfilled. I told you there was a psalm written in Gath. Look at David's response. After he laments, he says later on in this psalm, this I know, God is on my side. And I want you to hear that this morning. If you feel like you're in the wilderness, if you feel like you're asking those same questions, God is on your side. God is for you, not against you. It's so interesting, when, when David's day finally came to be king in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says this, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. God says, I've been with you everywhere you've been. And too often we evaluate the presence of God or the concern of God for our own lives by how well he meets our expectations. It's like we take our own personal agenda to God and we say, God, if you meet this, then you're doing a good job. But if you, if you don't meet this, then obviously you don't love me. But that's not the way at all. God is on our side. And David continues to say, I praise God for what he has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? He continues to trust the promises of God. You see, the promises of God aren't just reality when they happen. They are reality when God speaks them. Too often we think the promises of God are reality only when they come to fruition, but they are reality when God speaks them because God is powerful enough to speak them. And so David's saying, I trust in your promises, even though I don't see it. I mean, probably the literal distance between David and the throne was as big as ever. But the reality was he was closer to the throne than ever. And so we find David waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, waiting for his calling to come to fruition and trusting in the grace of a God who is for him. And as we wrestle with those wilderness experiences, we wanna wait the same way. Trusting in a great God who is for us and whose promises are true and whose grace is inexhaustible. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for these stories in your word. We thank you that your word is full of these amazing stories. And God, this morning, I ask for forgiveness for when we are like Saul and we think the rules are for other people and not ourselves, for when our words betray what's really in our heart. God, when we lean away. I just pray that you would give us strength to lean in. I pray that the truth that you are for us would sink deep into who we are, that you are on our side and that you can be trusted. Jesus, give us the courage to lean in there. In your name, amen.